We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. The Timeline is a Blue Wire podcast. Come on now. We know the threes, but now he just shot. What's the deal with him, Boycott? 2021. What? Little to little hoops all night. First it was Lillard, then Steph. Now you're telling me CP3? Oh! Welcome to the timeline of Phoenix Suns podcast. Midseason is here. The very boring All-Star game has ended. My name wow. is Mike. I'm here with Sam. Sam, how you doing? That's a little harsh. It was awful. I didn't have fun Chris, at all. You didn't have fun at all? Not well, even the a little? Dun- like the Chris Paul dunk was kind of exciting, but like and it wasn't No close. respect. No respect, first of all. No respect for Chris Paul setting the all-time assist record. Yeah, I mean, game. that was fine, but like it's as easy as it possibly gets when you're when they're not defending Giannis at the rim. I mean, I could get an assist in that scenario. <laughs> not to say that what Chris Paul didn't do or I, did do wasn't impressive. It's just no defense. I think the game was good. I think the Elam ending is still fantastic yeah, as I an still idea. It's yeah. it's not, you know, it's only Kevin Durant's fault that he drafted a trash team. Yeah. Yeah, I thought the game true. was good. And now, you know, the other events I could have done without, but I don't really, I know we're not going to have an extended uh, all-star conversation here, but just quickly, like, I don't know how you save the, what are typically the all-star Saturday night events. I don't know yeah. how to make it interesting at this point. Yeah. I, I don't really know how to fix those either. I kind of enjoy the three point contest still. That one doesn't really, the dunk contest is like, I mean, it's hard to say that the dunk contest is boring because it'll be boring for four years in a row and then you'll have Aaron Gordon and Zach Levine. Like, that's just kind of, it's just ebbs and flows with how exciting it can be. Every once in a while, you'll get somebody that's exciting. This year, pretty boring. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> the skills challenge, pretty boring. I, I will say that adding big men to the skills challenge did make it more interesting. because God, it's just, the skills challenge was so boring. It's boring. Come on. Yeah, it's, it's boring. But it's cool to It's it. cool to see big men that can do that. because they, It's uh, like every they big before. except DeAndre Ayton does that now. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's true. I mean, it would be... You, It'd be funny to see Andre Drummond out there uh, trying to make those passes. And you gotta, you gotta make it harder. Like whether it's guards or bigs, you have to make that event harder. I, I got an idea. Put Mikael Bridges and Jay Crowder out there guarding them at the rim <laughs> and all, tracking them around those cones. <laughs> yeah. Then it's interesting. Maybe you put big men in there to set screens too. You just go all the way. It's a pick and roll competition. Maybe that's what they should do. There, there's where Chris Paul could actually win. Missed a layup again. It was funny. Chris Paul, in before it started, he was talking to the guys about it. Apparently, he had done it four times before, and he was like, I can't believe I missed a layup in this competition once before. And then he missed a layup again. A very surprising wow. thing for Chris Paul to do. All right, it is midseason. This team is in a really interesting place. They have a great record. They're the second best team in the league by uh, their actual record, and I think by net rating at this point. At the lowest, they'll be third. I didn't check before this podcast. Uh, they look very good, and it's, you know, you and I were talking before we started recording. This is the first time we've really come to, like, a midseason point where we have a team that looks as good as this team is. So I thought we would come into this podcast and talk about the biggest questions facing the team for the second half of the season. I want to focus on this season because I think there are some interesting long-term questions that we can get to later, uh, but they're not really important to me right now. I want to focus on what this team looks like this season. By the way, Sam, we should talk about this. You and I had a disagreement online that people found interesting that we should probably address. Uh, we could actually, So not worth it. Not, not well, worth no, spending you know what? a lot we of can, time on this. We can get to it with one of these questions because I think it, okay. it falls into one of these questions here. But let's start with, I think, the biggest question <laughs> facing this team right now. Are the Suns really contenders? And this is, I think... I've sort of said that people need to talk about the Suns as a contender because they meet all the criteria. But I think there's a difference between saying they should be talked about as a contender and can they beat the Lakers and the Clippers in the playoffs because that's what it's mm-hmm. going to take. Now, it's it's interesting to talk about this now. I know that you have a specific opinion on it that you recently wrote about, but what do you think? Are the Suns contenders? I think the Suns are contenders. They absolutely deserve to be in the conversation at this point. Now, that being said, just to take a little bit of a statistical approach here, I'm looking at 538, and as you said, uh, I I wrote about this topic as well. Um, For most of you, there should be an article on Brightside coming out for me as well today on this very same topic. So I'm looking at 538's website right now. They use their Raptor, that's their advanced stat, um, player stats in order to project Uh, which teams they think are going to finish in what seed and which teams are going to make the finals and which teams are going to win the finals. Um, They have eight teams with at least a 5% chance of winning the finals right now. And I would circle that entire tier. It's a large tier. Granted, eight teams is a lot. But I think those eight teams, it's the Clippers, Nuggets, Jazz, Nets, Bucks, Lakers, Sixers, Suns. I think those are the eight contenders here at the midseason point. And I think the Suns have absolutely done enough to deserve... Um, a seat at the table in that conversation. They are not favorites by any means, and we can talk about what it takes to push them there. Um, but yeah, a 538 gives them a, a 5% chance, and I think that sounds about right based on where we are right now. When you look at the playoff picture right now, here here's how I'm looking at it, and I want, I want to get your opinion on this. Fully healthy, 
the Suns versus the Lakers, it's hard for me to picture a way for the Suns to currently win that matchup. Well, that's just 100% honesty for me. Uh, I know some people might not like hearing me say that, but it's just difficult to find a way to compete with the size of Anthony Davis, for one, and his skill set, and LeBron James at the same time. The Suns, you know, say you put Jay Crowder on LeBron, you have Mikhail sort of roaming off the ball, and you have Aiton guarding Anthony Davis. Yes, they have Marcus Gasol. I'm not, like, entirely worried about Marcus Gasol. Yes, if you find a way to put Frank Kaminsky in there, then it's kind of terrifying. But I, I don't know. I just I, It's hard for me because I think there's different kinds of contenders. There's the contenders that fully healthy, everything's fully healthy, they have a chance to make it to the finals. And there's mm-hmm. the contenders that it's like the, the Suns where I feel like if, LeBron's, if LeBron rolls his ankle or Anthony Davis rolls his ankle, then the Suns, there's like a really good chance that the Suns could make the finals at that point. But without that, I'm not really sure that they're in a place to be able to do that right now. Right. Is, is that where you're at too? Or do you think well, that fully healthy, they, they have a chance? And not to distance myself, my own opinion too much, but I think that's reflected in the stat I was just talking about too. Like right. when 538 with their model says the Suns have a 5% chance of winning the finals. The Suns right now, as you, as you already said, have the second best net rating, maybe the third best net rating. I didn't check either. The second or third best net rating in the NBA. So where's the discrepancy coming from? It's from them assuming that other teams are at full health. And, and you know, so what we have to admit to ourselves as Suns fans so far is, yeah, Devin Booker's missed a few games. He's injured again right now. Yeah, Dario Sarge missed a month. But, yeah, the Lakers have been without Anthony Davis for a very long time. Brooklyn, if you look across uh, across conferences, has barely played any games with all three of their superstars healthy at the same time. So the reason the Suns' probability is kind of pushed down is because you have to, you have to factor that in and say that the Suns are contenders i really do believe that but they're in that second tier of contenders where they kind of need a yeah they need a sprained ankle or or something really to 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 break right for them in order to have a a fair honest chance and that's what makes it so that even though you know they're the second or third best record you would say okay why don't they have a 20 or 30 percent chance of winning well it's because now they have a five percent chance instead because they need they need all these other things to go right but even that five percent chance if if we all you know agree that that sounds about right, 5%, that's worth pursuing, 100%. It's 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 right. still worth pursuing. I'd say this kind of already hits at our next question, so I won't go into it in too much detail right here, but it's worth pursuing as many avenues as possible right. to increase the talent level on this roster so right. that you can take that 5% and you can maximize it even more and have as, as great of a chance as you possibly can of toppling one of those juggernauts, even if they're at full health. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at. I kind of look at the Suns a little bit like Miami last year, to be honest. Exactly. And part of me even yeah. wonders if if you just sort of stack those teams up. This is kind of unfair to Miami, I guess. But if you just stack those teams up next to each other and say which one's better, just with straight-up talent, I'd almost be leaning towards the Suns. Maybe not because Bam is, is just it's so, hard. so good. But Butler was really good last year, and mm-hmm. I think Booker has been good for most of the for about half of the first half of the season. Yeah, so I, you know, I, I want to see a consistent second half out of Devin Booker before we say that. But, yeah, but in theory, you kind of you kind of just line those two teams up, those two rosters on paper, and I can yeah. definitely see the argument. And Chris Paul, I think, is the big difference there, where Chris Paul can just do so much, and he's been so good this season that. Uh, you know, I don't know that the Heat really had it, have anybody like him. Goran Dragic may be the best one-to-one comparison. It's not really fair. Uh, it'd almost be like you'd be comparing Jimmy Butler 
to Chris Paul and, and mm-hmm. Devin Booker to Goran Dragic. And I think that's where it kind of, if you just combine those two stars as one, uh, I don't know, it just gets kind of interesting. Bam is the real difference maker there. Uh, but yeah, that's kind of the the tier of contender that I would look at them where things could break right and they could make the finals, but they have to break right. And I, I you know, that it's I guess happened. that's a difference yeah. between a favorite and a contender. I mean, uh, it's happened before. It's happened often enough in yeah. NBA history. The eleven, the twenty eleven Mavericks, the two thousand four Pistons. It's the type of thing that maybe it only happens once every seven or eight years, but it, it that's often enough that it's worth it. Yeah, and it, you gotta I guess, try. I guess the question is, what would it take? to make them a favorite. I don't know that there's any way to do that in a conference with LeBron James, to be honest. So yeah, uh, that's just kind of what it is. The unfortunate reality of the NBA, you know, even, even if they got past that team, you know, when you've got Giannis on the other side and when you've got Harden and, uh, and Kyrie and, and KD all teamed up on the, on the same team, I don't think the Suns can become favorites this year if other teams are at full health. Yeah. And, you know, part of part of the path to make the finals is the right matchups, which is something that sure. as we get closer and closer to the playoffs that we're going to talk about. And I think we do have a question coming up about that. But before we even get there, uh, this kind of plays into this conversation. Should the Suns make a trade is the next question we have on this list. And I think uh, on top of that, are there buyout guys to look at? Basically, is this roster set or should they shake it up because they're playing well right now? You know, second best record, obviously. Um, you know, you can make a case that they're the second best team based on statistics. Does that matter? Uh, should they make a trade? What do you think? Yeah. Uh, well, okay. You. It's a loaded question. You never make a trade just to make a trade. So I want to make that very clear first. Continuity is very important. Part of the reason the Suns are here where they are so far is because of the continuity they've gotten out of building chemistry with those guys. So you don't want to ruin that. That being said, that's my caveat. That's my that's my disclaimer. Uh, the, yeah, I mean, for the Suns to vault themselves into the next tier of true contenders, they need more talent. And, you know, I look around at the way the Suns fan base is kind of talking about a lot of our players on the roster right now, and, and I just, you know, I understand why you always want to back your guys. I enjoy watching these guys who have won 24 out of 35 games as much as the next guy. But you know, trying to make the roster better, you can only have so much loyalty to some of these players. And so, you know, I think I would go back to what our kind of original point was when Chris Paul first got here. We said when Chris Paul first got here, and I believe that James Jones has always believed this, it opens this particular very short championship window with Chris Paul and Devin Booker together on the same team. Those two guys were going to be the system. And I think from the very beginning, James Jones believed the idea is to build around these two and get a championship contender. I didn't always believe that he would actually be able to accomplish it so soon. I kind of thought at the beginning of the season that was just lip service uh, James Jones was paying to us. And, you know, it was going to be a, a fun, scrappy, upstart kind of team that lost in the first round or whatever. Now that we're actually here and we are actually talking at the midseason point about the Suns being contenders... You take, again, sorry to go back to that same old stat again, but you take that 5% chance you're, you're being given from the advanced models or whatever right now, and you use the opportunity to really think hard about cashing in your chips and finding ways to optimize your roster and bring in more talent. And I don't really care. It's really by any means necessary. I don't care if you have to trade Jalen Smith. I don't care if you have to trade Cam Johnson. I don't care if you have to trade DeAndre Ayton or even Mikhail Bridges. Like, I think... Honestly, any single piece that the Suns have right now outside of Devin Booker and Chris Paul is on the table. Because if you really believe 
the answer that we gave to the first question, are the Suns a contender? If you right. really believe that's a yes, then you recognize the gravity of that situation. You recognize that that's something that if you're a Suns fan, you've only been able to answer yes to that question once every 15, 20 years. So if you really believe that, you go all in now. And that's not to say blow up the continuity just, just you know, for fun. Obviously, you don't want to do that. But if the right piece presents itself, and I'm not fully convinced that it has, but if it does, I would make anyone anyone else on the roster is potentially available. Yeah, I've kind of felt that way since they made the Chris Paul trade. Whether or not I would do it, I've felt that that's how James Jones has viewed it since the beginning. You You know that. It was the first thing I said after the trade was made. I think it's actually the way to talk about it in the context of this team is do I think they will make a trade? At this point, I kind of feel like they won't, and it's only because it's actually pretty difficult to find the right pieces with the contracts that are on this team. Chris Paul eats up so much of the cap. Devin Booker, a huge percentage of it after that. And then you have to put all these different guys together to make trades to find the right guys if they're making any more north of like $8 million. And there's different types of trades that you can talk about. I think P.J. Tucker is a type of guy that you hope that nobody wants to trade for. He gets bought out, and maybe he's available on on the buyout market, and then you can get him with that uh, exception that the Suns held on to. They have a little more money than than an absolute minimum to give guys if they want to, but with a biannual exception. Then there's guys like George Hill, where like if you want George Hill, are you willing to put Javon Carter, a second-round pick, and Langston Galloway in there? Maybe they don't want that. Maybe they want Jalen Smith and Javon Carter. Are you willing to do that? That's a question. And maybe they should be. I, I, I'm not fully convinced that James Jones would be at this point. I think that he believes in Jalen Smith enough to draft him. And Jalen Smith, you know, <laughs> came into the league, got COVID right away, and has struggled a little bit since. So it's it's hard to say that he's had a fair shot. Should that matter? I'm not necessarily sure that it should. Then there's more, right? Then you start saying, well, what about Vucevic? Say Vucevic is available. Do you package DeAndre Ayton for Vucevic? Now, that's a conversation that would James Jones do that? I'm not really sure. Would I do that? I'm not really sure about that either. Probably not. It's it's tough to imagine a way that somebody would shake up a team that dramatically at this point of the season. I, I, but I'm not fully convinced that James Jones but- wouldn't do that. Isn't that what it would take to, I mean, if we just admitted, we just conceded, this team has been so good. And and this is kind of what has frustrated me a little bit about the conversation. It's not the Suns don't deserve credit for where they are because they've been so good. But it's that it's very easy to become complacent when you find yourself at second in the conference right now, as they have been. And we even just admitted, Mike, yeah, the Suns are second in, in the NBA. They're second in the conference right now. But if the Lakers were at full strength... If the if the Clippers, the Clippers have, have missed a lot of games of Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. The Nuggets are climbing back up the standings. Portland has been winning games without CJ McCollum and Yusuf Nurkic. A lot of things have already broken right for the Suns. They maybe don't deserve to be exactly where they are. If I would I would trade Aiton for Vucevic. Now I will say, I think it's a moot point. I think it's kind of a, a fruitless, useless discussion. Um, because there isn't really a way that I've I've d- been able to discover for for the Suns to actually make that trade in the first place. So I don't think you know Vucevic specifically isn't isn't the type of guy I'm talking about. But he's the type of hypothetical yeah, talent level. He's an all star. He's an all star, and 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 that's what it is. Right. DeAndre Ayton, we're talking about potential. Nikola Vucevic is a current all star in his prime. 
There's an obvious difference there to, to anyone who seriously watches the two players. And what I'm saying right now is, as important as potential is, for guys like DeAndre Ayton, for guys like Mikhail Bridges, who I love so much, if you really believe that the Suns can win this year, then none of that other stuff matters. You go and get the best players you can right now. And, and it's true for Jalen Smith as well. And talking about George Hill... I wouldn't immediately offer Jalen Smith for George Hill. I wouldn't want to overplay my hand if I was James right. Jones, right? And, you know, not to mention, I like Jalen Smith. I actually think he's going to be something in the NBA one day. I think there's a very good chance that he's going to be a serviceable, um, rotational big. And I think the reason he hasn't played mostly for the Suns so far is just because, you know, he's he's a young kid and, and Darius Arch has just been so good. Uh, but... <laughs> That doesn't mean I wouldn't be willing to make those types of moves if I really think the Suns can win a championship this year. It's just we've been bad for so long that we've kind of forgotten mm -hmm. when the right time is to shift into that gear and accelerate the timeline. There's there's your plug for the name of this podcast <laughs> in the first place to accelerate the timeline and actually accomplish the ultimate goal. We're all trying to win a championship. That's why we watch this team, right? So I'm not worried about potential right now. I'm not worried about the future. And what these players are going to be in two or three years. If you really think they can take down the Lakers, put your money where your mouth is and try. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, just for the record, uh, Aiton, Jalen Smith, Javon Carter, and say Galloway and Nader, uh, that would make up what Vucevic makes in salary. If you're, if you're talking about what it would take to get an all-star at this point. That's, that's that's a lot. It's a it's a lot and the Suns would have to fill and it's exactly why that conversation is interesting. For one, if you if you trade Aiton, you're you're really looking at a massive hole in this team as far as defensive because and we're going to talk more about Aiton later uh, because I think he's such a fascinating part of the questions that face the team later in the season. Um, and you know, obviously his offense has been a bit of a roller coaster this season. There was a stretch where he was possibly the best offensive player on the team for a few games, four games in a row. And then outside of that, it's been a roller coaster. And, you know, you're looking at a massive hole there. And, and if you, if you absolutely strike all your depth and then now you have to fill backfill the roster with minimum guys that are available at this point of the season, hopefully guys that are bought out or something like that, it, it just gets really complicated. And, and at, at the very least interesting that's what it would take to add another all-star to this team. Do they need that? I'm not convinced that they do. But, I, you know, I'm not... It's it's a weird thing where I could see the value of doing it and I could see um, the reasoning against it. It's something that I'm not really willing to just fall on either side of that. And I guess that's, that's a little bit wishy-washy with that conversation. But I, I just... <laughs> well, for me, it's more about reading what I think James Jones would do. And he's such a... It's very hard I to read. I think he could do anything. I, yeah. Look, I think if we're talking about realism, I think it's going to be a pretty boring trade deadline uh, deadline for the Suns. Yeah, I, think I agree. They yeah. are going to explore the buyout market. They might explore. There's a reason they created one open roster spot in the first place. They'll explore a minor trade. And I think there's room for us in the conversation later when we talk about the bench to also talk about trade targets. Uh, I have a list of a few trade targets here that I think are interesting for, for a bench spot. So again, I don't think we're trading for Cat this year. I don't think we're trading for Vucevic right. this year. Right. Philosophically, though, I'd be open to the idea, is all I'm saying. Yeah, I think I feel that way too, but I'm just kind of open to a lot of ideas when it comes to team building. Whereas I think a lot of fans are not, at least during the regular season, uh, a lot of things shift. I mean, we saw it demonstrated Chris, the by Chris the fact, Paul. by the way, that we've we we're just retreading old battles right now. 
you know, demonstrated by the fact that a lot of fans didn't want to give up uh, Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre yeah. for Chris Paul, exactly. which is fine. You get, you know, you get attached to guys. It's part of being a fan. But it's sort of the same conversation all over again, mm-hmm. uh, if that makes sense. Yeah. So should they make a trade? Probably. I mean, I, you should you should absolutely see what's out there. Uh, should they make a massive trade? I don't think they will. And and I think that there's a fair argument to make that they should probably see what this team can do in the playoffs based on how they're currently playing. Uh, you know, with DeAndre Ayton, I know we're going to get to him. Part of the issue with DeAndre Ayton is his focus from a game to game. Uh, just sort of how he sort of drifts in and out sometimes. When you're in the playoffs and every game is sort of vitally important to win, it's possible that he clicks on for every playoff game and you get the DeAndre Ayton that you need in every playoff game. If that does happen... It's you know that's kind of what you need. So you and that's know that's how he earns that's how he earns that second contract. Yeah, it really would be, it really would be. So you know, <laughs> uh, and and you know that's when you need him the most. And we talked about it with Mikael Bridges as well. Like I said on the last episode, if Mikael Bridges averages eighteen points in the playoffs, all of a sudden he's getting twenty five million dollars a year. So it's you know, I have a feeling that they're gonna hold Pat buyout guys. I don't think George Hill is going to get bought out for anybody who uh, is talking. I just, he has some guaranteed salary next year. It would take a lot to buy him out. I think that OKC has the right kind of leverage that they're probably going to try and trade him. And I think Houston's going to do their best to try and trade PJ Tucker too. But I do think there's a chance he gets bought out just with the fact that his agent is so, they're not really happy with Houston, uh, PJ Tucker and his agent. So Uh, they have no reason to be. Um, That being said, PJ has been bad this year, but I think it's the same situation as Blake where, and you you disagree oh, yeah. with me on this, I think. But I think it's the same situation as Blake, where neither guy is there to be a starter necessarily and save your whole right. system. But I think there's a little bit of juice to squeeze out of both guys. And uh, and by the way, Aaron Baines too. I just want to throw his name out there again. Right. I mentioned him on the pod with Max uh, when I was just when it was just Max and I a couple weeks ago. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'd st- I'd still be watching his name because I'd happily pick him up again if he yeah. hits the market. My uh, feelings on Blake, just to clarify, were that if he were to sign, I think that he would have wanted a bigger role than I think the Suns should have given him based on how he's played so far. He's just This is a war. (laughs) With P.J. Tucker, I just don't feel like he would demand that. You know, I think P.J. Tucker is the type of guy that is willing to earn that role, whereas Blake maybe wants it a little bit, but, you know, we'll see. I, I do think he'll be good on the nets. Like, I think he still has some juice left. I do I'm wonder how to, much minutes I, he's going to get in the playoffs. I don't know. That he I am glad to hear you at least say that, that yeah. you think, because because when we had our little timeline civil war on Twitter <laughs> the other day about, about Blake Griffin, of all things, ridiculous, mm-hmm. uh, I think the most compelling argument I heard from you still was was the like chemistry, the off-court chemistry stuff, because really, I, I think Blake's going to be fine surrounded by the right talent. I just don't think he's going to play in the playoffs. Really. And I think like a guy like PJ Tucker, who's objectively a worse player than Blake Griffin is a guy who probably can still get minutes in the playoffs. And Blake just can't because of defense. You have to be a good team defender in the playoffs to get minutes on a good team. And, you know, I even think for the nets, you know, they're, they're the type of thing where they don't have any, they don't have any good defensive players. So maybe he will get minutes on that team. (laughs) Whereas on the Suns, I'm not sure he would. Like I, it's a weird thing where I would say I would not play him over Dario Saric. That's that's where Blake Griffin's career is at. I'm assuming you feel the same way about Drummond. Then, like Drummond, yeah, I was going to um, ask about him. Well, because here's the thing, man. Drummond is so talented, and and this is kind of what frustrated me a little bit about Blake. Is is if I were Blake, even if the Suns were interested, I would run to Brooklyn too. But there's something that doesn't sit quite right with me about Blake going to Brooklyn 
Andre Drummond, if the reports are true, being potentially interested in going to L.A. I saw right. something from, Lakers. from from Shams about that today. Yeah, to the Lakers. Sorry, I sometimes forget. I have to specify which L.A. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's an arms race. And so there's something shitty about the Suns kind of sitting out and, and saying hubristically, no, we're, we're fine with what we have. We think we have enough talent to win here. When I'm as high on the Suns as, as anyone, I think, you know, but but I just don't believe that. <laughs> you know, they need more talent to get around some of these best yeah. teams at, at, at full health. Um, yeah. That being said, Drummond, the fit is just weird. I mean, Sarge yeah. has been so good off the bench. Yeah. I think the Suns absolutely could benefit from another physical big to serve as DeAndre Ayton insurance right. in case Ayton is not bringing the hustle, the energy, in case he's not physically physically setting the tone, as our old friend Baines fan club would say. That's why I'm interested in Aaron <laughs> Baines. Um, but I just don't know if Drummond is that guy specifically because Drummond yeah. would take minutes away from Sarge at the five where Sarge has been most productive. Yeah, I... It's a, it's, a, it's a different thing with Drummond where I felt like Blake would have never agreed to come to the Suns because I think they would have been upfront with what his role would be. If Drummond were to agree to come to the Suns, he would essentially have to agree to be the third center. And I'm not sure he would agree to that either. I don't, yeah. You know, the Lakers would probably tell him, hey, we could start you like right now. Like you could start on this team. And, uh, you know, why wouldn't he take that? <laughs> start on a contender. Uh, yeah. And he, maybe he plays 13 minutes, 14 minutes a game on a contender, but he's still starting, and, and that and might it, matter. And it, it just sucks because it feels like he's not a good fit here, but it also feels like he makes that L.A. team, uh, sorry, the Lakers, feels like he makes them better. Yeah, I, I could good. say that. His finishing at the rim is really bad, though. I, I found that I know, kind of but I don't care. Yeah, I, no. I really, you know, I really don't want to hear it. Like, no, and, I get and, it. And it's nothing it. against you. But it's like Andre Drummond is the type of guy, you know, you pay a player $30 million and so much of the narrative changes to where uh, yeah, like people, absolutely. people have been, people have been picking little holes in yes. Andre Drummond's game for years, but Just it's like the rebounding you, you, alone. you get the chance to get the best rebounder in the NBA for $2 million. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Like, you know, you just got to shift your expectations a little bit. I, Obviously I totally he's a bad agree. Finisher. I totally agree. I think for me, it's just, I don't think he would come here. So it's, it's yeah. difficult to even talk about that. Like, you know, if, if DeAndre Ayton was injured or something and you can slot him into the starting lineup, then yeah, I think he would. But it's just not, I don't even know that it's worth even talking about it. And you're right. You know, at $2 million, he's a great fit on any team. Um, okay. Two questions. <laughs> We've gotten two questions so far. <laughs> we got a few more. This is an interesting one. Who is the best playoff matchup for the Suns when you're looking at the playoff picture right now? Now, it's actually, I have, I was telling you before we started recording this, where I still am a Suns fan ultimately, where even just talking about making the playoffs makes me almost uncomfortable and scared. Uh, <laughs> right now, the Suns would play the Spurs. In the first round, I don't think they played the Spurs yet this season, right? They have, they haven't. Yeah, so it's difficult to say if that would even be a good or a bad matchup. I mean, I think that's ideal, though. Yeah, I will I mean, say that's my pick. Keep in mind that it would be a competition between the Spurs, Mavericks, Warriors, and Grizzlies right now. Uh, if they were, you know, with that sort of seven, eight, nine, ten competing for those last two playoff spots, so it could be one of any of those four teams uh, based on where the records are right now. You'd rather play the Spurs than the Mavericks? We'll start there. Yeah. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Playoffs come. <laughs> yeah. I realize I'm on a podcast. I have to tell you why. I mean, DeAndre um, and just kills the Mavericks, too. I mean, it's not DeAndre does DeAndre kill the Mavericks. Aiton, but yeah, well, in the game he plays. It, 
it absolutely helps that we have destroyed the Mavericks for the past yeah. few years and for Booker, whatever reason. Really, yeah. Even with even with Igor, the season we were awful, we still beat the Mavericks. Um, yep. The Spurs don't have star power. That's all due respect yeah. to DeMar DeRozan, who's had a great season. But playoffs is about star power. Yeah. Um, and I don't care if Popovich can work all the weird voodoo magic he wants. I don't think he's getting out of the first round with that crew. Um, so, I, you know, I think really San Antonio would be the ideal matchup. Uh, we would have to eat our words quite a bit if they managed to beat us. I guess it would be shades of them getting us back for 2010 all right. over again. Right. Uh, but I do think... Uh, yeah, just lack of star power for that team. You know, they share the ball well. They take care of the ball. Um, but they're they're also, like, not loaded with shooters. There's there's nothing in particular that you can point out about that San Antonio roster and say, yeah, they're elite at that. Like, I don't think they're elite at a single thing. So, I, you know, I just feel pretty confident about taking care of business against a team like that. Yeah. You know, looking at the four teams that are there, 7, 8, 9, 10, I mean, the worst team is the Grizzlies. That would probably be the team that I would choose if we could play against any of those just because they're uh, the worst team, struggled to stay healthy. Young, where, you know, that's the type of team that Chris Paul will kind of tear apart. When it's a young team, the Warriors probably scare me the most out of that group just because they have the star power, exactly what you're talking about, where they have a guy who could just average 50 uh, for four games in a row (laughs) if they need him to. Uh, If the Pelicans... Or even the Thunder, the Kings could get up into that mix. Obviously, I'd, I'd prefer any one of those teams, and it could be them, right? If they if they get up to the tenth seed, they just have to win one game against the seven, eight, or nine uh, to be in the playoffs. If the Suns are still at the top of the uh, top of the charts here, then there's a chance that you could play any one of those. So, you know, mm-hmm. I, I'd prefer the, probably the Kings <laughs> out of any of those teams if we could play the Kings because they're the worst at fourteen and twenty two, but. You know, all these, all of these teams, the Suns are good enough now where I feel but pretty see, confident against most of them, except for maybe the Warriors, oh, and even the Warriors, I, I feel pretty confident. That's interesting that you just broke up what was going to be my point there by saying you feel pretty confident, because I sense, you know, hesitation. I sense fear in your voice. And, I, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking oh, yeah. like... that's I, the Suns fans in me. It's still here. That's, right. I understand that it's Especially there, the Spurs. It's like, it's like, if we're worried about the San Antonio Spurs then maybe we're not as close to being, you know, maybe maybe the answer to the original question, are the well, Suns contenders, is no. Maybe we're not contenders if well, we're worried about Well, it's like someone who's afraid of clowns as an adult because a clown scared them when they were a kid. <laughs> clowns are not actually dangerous to most people, but, like, there's something sure. in there that still scarred me that has me still afraid of the Spurs a little bit. Oh, and it, sure. It just exists. It, it's tough to get rid of that. You know, same with the Lakers to an extent, but it's more, I feel like, with the Spurs because... Yeah, Pop is sort of outmaneuvered <laughs> coaches that the Suns have had in the past, and mm-hmm. we're going to get to Monty later and talk about that. But uh, uh, who's the worst playoff matchup? Do you think we we don't have to spend too long? I think it's got to be the Lakers, right? At some point, if the if the Suns get, uh, yeah, well, at some point, if you were talking about just first round, it was uh, when they were matched up a few days ago against Denver. That scared me. Denver's yeah. just a really good team, and and there's also like the fact that Jamal Murray hasn't taken it uh, up a notch like he Mm -hmm. did in the playoffs last Mm -hmm. year he hasn't done that yet this year so if he does that again in addition to what Jokic is doing yeah that's really tough that team is really tough that's tough um yeah obviously the Lakers are are the worst of all matchups though um of like any team you could play in the Western Conference Finals but uh, once this team gets into the second round they're all pretty difficult like even if Golden State snuck into the second round even if Portland snuck into the second round those teams yeah I think the advantage 
is what separates the Suns from those teams is that the Suns have better perimeter defenders. We have a Mikhail Bridges to sick on their thirty point mm-hmm. uh, per game scores. They don't necessarily get the same privilege on us, mm-hmm. but they they're still loaded with star power. Like a Portland with with a healthy CJ and uh, Nurkic is not to be taken for granted. They've gotten to the Western right. Conference Finals before with that core. You know, yeah, so, CJ so was even basically those teams, Devin Booker before he uh, went right. down to one of the better scores in the NBA. Um, right. Just to spite you and I, I think. Uh, <laughs> is nobody afraid of the Jazz, <laughs> by the way? Well, <laughs> isn't that kind of funny? I, is nobody afraid of the Jazz? Who, I think some people are afraid of the Jazz. In the second round, would anybody be... Like, I almost would prefer no. the Jazz over no. a lot of the second round teams that I could look at. But, you know, the and Suns you know, have to play them a few more times, so we're going to get some more looks at them. But the, the Suns match up well against them. The main critique that I had of the Suns very early on in this episode, right, when I was talking about the Suns have benefited from a clean slate of health, for the most part. The measure, again, I'm plugging my article, which should be up today on Brightside. The measure that I used for that is looking at the unique number of starting lineups that each team has used. Because logically, it's you've used fewer unique combinations of these five guys as starting means you've been healthier. Because ideally, you settle on your five guys and, and those are your guys. Um Consistently, what we see is the teams that use fewer starting lineup combinations have better net ratings in the NBA. And in fact, that's true this year where the three top teams in net rating as of today, Phoenix, Utah, and Milwaukee, are the three teams that have used the fewest lineup combinations. So a lot of that, you know, that same criticism that I said about Phoenix, we've been luckier than we deserve to this point, knock on wood, (laughs) you could say the same thing about Utah. Like, they've just stuck with their five guys all season long. I think they've used literally three lineups this entire season. Meanwhile, you've got teams out here like the Clippers and Lakers who are on number 18 or 20 of the starting lineups. Literally, that's how many starting lineups those teams have used at this point. They've had to suffer a lot more adversity than the Utah Jazz. So as impressive as it is that Utah is where they are in the standings, they have a two-game lead over us and maybe three or four over the L.A. teams. Um yeah, I mean, all, all you need to do is hope for a sprained ankle to, to, to one of those players, honestly. And it's going to be a level of adversity that they just haven't faced yet this season. Yeah. So I'm curious to see if something like that happens. And it's, I don't think it's a coincidence that they started off so well and they were the team that had one of the highest levels of continuity from previous years. Yeah. And then as teams get to play with each other a little bit more and their continuity develops and sort of that chemistry develops, they can catch up a little bit to the to the Jazz. We'll see how well they do there. They're very good, and all of the stats point to them being uh, legit, and it's just tough for me to see it because I haven't watched enough of them to really come to that conclusion. Some mornings you wake up feeling ready to pull the covers over your head and go back to sleep. No judgment, of course, but let's make having the most comfortable sheets the reason why. Don't love your sheets? Brooklinen has you covered. So Brooklinen was started by Rich and Vicky, who also tried to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. And when they couldn't, they founded Brooklinen as the first direct-to-consumer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without the luxury level markups. Brooklinen has a variety of sheets, colors, patterns, and materials to fit your needs and tastes. Brooklinen has over 50,000 five-star reviews and counting. They're so confident that you will love their products, they even offer a 365-day money-back guarantee. And Brooklinen is so much more than sheets. They've got comforters, pillows, towels, even loungewear, and more. If you're even considering buying sheets, why not buy from this great company 
and support this podcast. Go to brooklinen.com and use the promo code TIMELINE to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter the promo code TIMELINE to get $25 off when you spend $100 or more, plus free shipping. brooklinen.com and use the promo code TIMELINE at checkout. Uh, Let's see, this one, what has disappointed you the most this season and who or I should say who or what has disappointed you the most this season and who or what has impressed you the most this season do you want to start yeah I could start um let me start with a good <laughs> let me start with a good good thing let me start with a good thing okay great there's two things that have impressed me the most Chris Paul and I knew that watching Chris Paul on a game-to-game basis was gonna be a blast but I mean he's He's just a genius, and it's very fun to watch him on a game-to-game basis. And the other thing is the Suns' defense. Uh, I talked myself into the Suns having a top-10 defense right before the season started, and it almost scared me because like, I realized they could have a top-10 defense and a top-10 offense. And is that real, or am I insane? And so far, they have been even better than I had anticipated up near the top of the league in defense and i think those are the things that have impressed me the most and And it's all thanks to dario charge so congratulations to him (laughs) (laughs) you know no it's it's literally true though dario charge has the best defensive rating of any rotation player in the nba right now i just want to put that out there that is a true fact Mm -hmm. no one expected that we would be there that 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 we would be here today no absolutely not and and here's the the disappointing part I think is a difficult thing to talk about on a podcast with a team that's playing so well. But there's two things for this too. And the first one I think is almost unfair to say, but Jalen Smith so far has, the the whole Jalen Smith experience has been relatively disappointing uh, with how good other players have played, specifically one in Tyrese Halliburton. Uh, and the fact that uh, he struggled to stay on the court with the Suns, which is fair for a contender. Rookies usually don't play. And in his stint in the G League hasn't been ultra impressive um, so that's been disappointing, and it's it's tough to say this, but I gotta say it: DeAndre Ayton's offense, specifically, has been incredibly disappointing so far this season. I mean, and we'll talk more about DeAndre Ayton, so I'll just hold off there. But what what do you think? I well, I'll hold off with you then, because that was <laughs> that was what I was going to talk about too. So it's as um, far as being disappointed. What's well, what's impressed you the most? And then let's get to Ayton. Yeah, I mean, Chris Paul, first of all, very impressive, uh, like you said. Um, I just think about what the discourse was about Chris Paul, right, before the season started. It, it's pretty rare in the social media age that a guy with a $40 million contract comes in like Chris Paul and just completely uh, assuage the fears of the entire Suns fan base. You know, that doesn't happen that often like he's done and I think there's still a question about is he going to run out of gas at some point that's that's valid but I've pointed out in the past statistically the season he's having right now is very similar to the season Nash had in in 2010 when the Suns last went to the Western Conference Finals that's how good he's been um yeah and and Mikhail Bridges probably deserves a shout out here too took a step forward I don't think you know we have to get yeah. into that in, in in great detail right now right, because I right. think we've talked about it but um, Mikhail Bridges taking a step forward in his offensive game, working to expand it, getting to the point where he now like punishes mismatches and stuff and and looks to find his own mid-range shot, not super frequently, but frequently enough that it's an option, is is important. It it really builds out the uh the versatility and and how dynamic this offense is. 
Yeah. Yeah, those are good ones. And we'll get to DeAndre Ayton. Let's let's specifically And, and can I just say like DeAndre Ayton hasn't been bad. No. But he has disappointed. Like, do you want to just get into it now? Just yes. Kind the, of que- the question we have on DeAndre Ayton is what should we make of DeAndre Ayton's season? Sure. But I think the question is so overarching. You know, I just listened to Eddie Johnson on the Zach Lowe podcast, and both of them talked about how important DeAndre Ayton is for the Suns this season. Devin Booker's talked about how important DeAndre Ayton is for the Suns this season. Chris Paul has talked about it. James Jones has talked about it. Uh, Monty Williams has talked about it. Basically, everyone is capable of recognizing the importance of DeAndre Ayton this season. And I'll be honest, that kind of scares me sometimes because of his inconsistency. There was a four-game stretch where DeAndre Ayton showed you and showed all of us how good he can be when he is properly aggressive, and then that sort of disappeared offensively. Now, I think it's very important to say one of the things that has impressed me the most this season has been the Suns' defense, and the Suns' defense is still head, headed by DeAndre Ayton, who plays the most minutes at the center position for this team, and he's a young player playing center on one of the best defensive teams in the NBA. That is important, and it's very, very impressive, and that's part of who he is. You can say all that if you ignore the on-off numbers, and it looks especially good. Now the on-off numbers for him on defense are not good, and, and they're not. They're not good. You, it's it's an important distinction to make there that the flip side of saying Darius Sharich has the best defensive rating in the NBA means that, or or, or that he has the best defensive rate, uh, rating on the Suns rather means that DeAndre Ayton, among everyone in the Suns rotation, has the worst defensive rating in the rotation. Yeah, and I'm not saying there's a reason for that. I, I'm not even saying there's a particular reason that I've sussed out why why that's the case. I, I think almost find that, it inex- inexplicable at this point. I think it's the great mystery of the Suns' season is how DeAndre Ayton can look so sound defensively most of the time. I don't think he's an elite defender. I think some Suns no. fans, there's a legion of Suns fans who have rushed to crown DeAndre Ayton as an elite defender. I don't think he's there yet. I think he's good. Definitely better than his defensive rating suggests. And so that's that's kind of the big mystery of the season is is why that uh, massive gulf between those two players even exists in the first place. What is tough about DeAndre Ayton for me so far this season, and this is just full honesty here, and I've talked to you about this, Sam, before, is what it takes for DeAndre Ayton to have a good game and have a good season. The expectations for him have lowered so much that basically all he has to do is be good to not bad defensively and not screw up offensively. And then all of a sudden he's done well. Well, you know, a lot of us expected a little bit more out of him this season. What I wanted to see him do is develop more as a playmaker. He hasn't done that. I wanted to see him develop more as somebody who's capable of dribbling the ball. He has not done that. I wanted to see him develop more as a shooter. He has not done that. So now what we're saying is for him to be good he just has to not screw up on offense, and he has to be relatively good on defense. And if you can't call that disappointing, I'm not sure what you can say. Because that is disappointing that we are lowered our expectations so much that for him to be good, he just has to not be bad. <laughs> I yeah, would I mean, like I it think... better if he was good at shooting or if he was good at playmaking right. at this or good at dribbling. I would like that more. But we've just sort of given up on that, haven't we? Yeah, I think you said it all. I mean, the truth is, you know, there's a lot of crazy people on both ends of the spectrum with the DeAndre 
uh, Aiton conversation. Some people would have you believe he's the next Tim Duncan. Some people would have you believe he doesn't belong in the NBA at all. And, and you know, those are always kind of conversations, it seems like, invariably about his potential. But just right now, what DeAndre Ayton is right now, he's an average starting center in the NBA. And I don't think he's really anything more or anything less than that. He's solid. He gives you a lot of good games, and he also gives you a lot of bad games. And one thing I do want to credit him for, it was important that he entered into Monty's system this year and was willing to take the step back on offense to become more of a role player um, that he did. That that was a big change for him to make. He hasn't entirely cut out the face-up mid-range game out of his offense, but I didn't want him to. I just wanted him to trim off the excess and kind of turn it into, you know, maybe he was taking three or four of those shots per game, turn that into one or two and take the extra possessions and use those as, as role man possessions instead and try to get to the rim and, and try to be a lob threat next to Chris Paul. For the most part, DeAndre Ayton has responded very well to that. And it's resulted in him having the highest true shooting percentage of his career. You know, yes. his, his efficiency has gone up. He's playing like more of a role player. But to your point, Mike, there's more to being a good role player as a center in the NBA yes. than just grabbing 10 rebounds and being a lob threat. A lot of guys can grab 10 rebounds and be a lob threat. And again, that's not saying DeAndre Ayton's bad. It's just saying, it's just facts. A lot of guys can grab 10 rebounds and be a lob threat. For him to take the next step, into being a great role player. One of those, as I've called them before, superstar role players. Guys who are a superstar in their role, even if they're not necessarily 20 or 25 point per game scores. He has to take the next step with the shooting so that he actually has spacing and gravity on the floor. He has to take the next step with his playmaking. And he, most importantly, he has to bring the effort every night on defense because as we know it's all about defense with deandre ayton and if he doesn't bring that effort and consistency every night then kind of the entire scheme falls apart so yeah i, I just don't know how many ways i can say it it's not that deandre ayton has been bad it's just that how many times can you actually point at him in a game this season and say yeah he stood out in a positive way four times i don't know that it's, yeah it's been it hasn't been often four uh, times <laughs> It was four go. excellent games, and, and that was the standard that he set for himself that we now have to hold him to because he proved he's proven that he can do that, and it's fair to say maybe it is all mental. And I still believe there's a chance that it sort of clicks and locks in in the playoffs when he understands the importance of the games. Maybe that is possible. But for the Suns to be good, he just has to play defense and catch lobs at the rim and do his best to score when he's under the basket. And why is that the case? Well, it's because he's not very good at those other things. Right, that's really the truth of it, and that's the important thing that I think we have to face at some point. If he was good at dribbling, then for the Suns to be good, he would dribble. That would be good. If he was good at shooting, then for the Suns to be good, he would shoot. Like the reason that we have limited his role so much at this point of his career, and why he's just a role player that does a very small amount of things offensively, is because he struggled to do those other things. And I, you know, that that means that it's been disappointing so far. And and that's that's tough. And you know, I've we've sort of stayed away from this conversation, I think, so far because of how it's become such a hot button issue for uh, Suns fans this season. But we have at some point we have to recognize that we're expecting less and less and less from him, and that's not great. <laughs> that's just a little bit tough. It's disappointing at the very least. The Suns can still be very very good with DeAndre Ayton on the team, and I think that's the good news. But so much of that is because of Chris Paul and how good Chris Paul is. And, uh, and you know, Chris Paul is old, <laughs> you know, at some point. And hopefully DeAndre Ayton will develop more and more in the future. But it's Chris not Paul, been exciting yeah. as far as the development curve for DeAndre Ayton this season. 
Chris Paul is old, A, and not to throw another shot at Jalen Smith, but Tyrese Halliburton is not on this team. <laughs> you know, yeah. there's not an obvious heir to Chris Paul yet either, which doesn't help matters. Yeah, it just makes it more complicated. So I'm not fully convinced that DeAndre Ayton's defense is non-exploitable in the playoffs as well. I think we saw what the Nets did. Obviously, that's an extreme, but that's the types of teams that you play when you're in the playoffs. You play the guys with the ultra-talented perimeter players. And, you know, if you just look at the numbers alone, it looks like it is exploitable. And and that's something that they the Suns have to figure out. And as they play better and better teams going forward this season, there's a nice stretch in April where we're going to get a good look at, at how teams are going to play us in the playoffs. We're going to see if he's capable of doing that. And I'm not saying that he can't. I think there's a good chance that what he can provide with a big that can switch onto the perimeter could be the most important thing for the Suns in the playoffs. But we have to you see know, it still. Last thing on this before we move on, because we have a lot of other questions to address. Sharch has been so good, and we are halfway through the season now where the net ratings say what the net ratings say. Whatever reason that's for, we don't we don't exactly know. But I think someone asked this question when uh when when you tweeted about it, like, should Dario be taking more of more of Aiton's minutes? Is is that something that we're going to see in the playoffs as Monty's response to to these challenges that some of these lineups are facing. You know, not necessarily that Dario would start. I don't I don't really think he would start, but maybe instead of it being currently a situation where DeAndre plays like 30 minutes and Dario plays 18, you kind of level them out where it's closer to closer to 50-50, 24-24. What do you think? I think that what we know about Monty, we're going to talk more about him, is that he's probably going to first try to play them together to try and get Dario on the court a little bit more. And if that works, then you can continue doing that. It's not a terrible experiment, in my opinion, just because at some point the Suns might play the Lakers and you have to see if there's two big lineups at work. Um, but if it doesn't work, then, yeah, I think there, there's a chance. Um, you know, and, it's, and at some point, it's just those two guys earning their minutes. Whoever earns them, earns them. And they're going to play a little bit more. So, you know, it's entirely on the players as far as what they, what they can do. So we'll see. Um, all right fascinating there sorry if you pissed off some people there but you got to have that conversation at some point next question is Devin Booker back to normal now (laughs) DeAndre Ayton sucks next question is Devin Booker amazing well here's the thing what Devin Booker does is vital for this team going forward we all have had these beliefs and thoughts about how good Devin Booker is well now they are going to be tested he struggled to start this season. It's inarguable that he struggled to start this season. What he can do and the ceiling that he can reach for this team is the most important thing because we know that Chris Paul is likely going to be a very consistent player. The only worry with Chris Paul, really, for me, is whether or not he can stay healthy going forward. There's no analysis there, so I'm not even going to talk about that. There's no point. Assuming he can, the heights that Devin Booker reach reaches is likely going to be the heights that this team reaches because if he struggles offensively in the playoffs, the Suns are probably done for. Like You don't have a lot of other guys that can step up in that role. It's really just Devin Booker. He started looking really good. I mean, he had his he had his season high right before the season ended. You know, Everyone thought he was going to be motivated by not initially getting selected for the All-Star game, and I, I'd say that they were right, especially with Chris Paul feeding him the way he was. He's starting to look a little bit back to normal. I'm pretty confident that he's going to look pretty good. He obviously has a knee injury now. I think it's just a knee-to-knee thing where it's just probably swollen and sore, and he's probably going to be fine in a week or two. 
But how do you feel about how he was playing before the break? Uh, well, how he was playing before the break, he was he was fantastic before the break. Um, in in terms of trying to project it forward, I feel good. I feel good about Book basically being back to his old self. I I'm not sure that it's obvious because Booker is, what is he? 24? Twenty four. He's mm-hmm. not twenty five yet, right? I don't think, I think so. he's twenty. I think he's twenty four. Doesn't he have your old. birthday? I feel like you should know. <laughs> that's a that's a good point. So I am twenty three. <laughs> Therefore, Booker is 24. He's exactly okay. one year older than me. Uh, that's a good point. You know, ideally, a guy who's 24 years old isn't in his prime yet. So I'm still waiting to see kind of where where else he can take it to. Because I do think Booker is to the point now with uh, what his play was in the last few weeks before the break. He's where he was at last season. He's that good. Can mm-hmm. he get even better? That's kind of what I'm waiting to see. Yeah. I have a stat for you. Uh, since February 1st, I'd say when the Suns clicked, that's probably a good time to sort of center it at. Uh, Devin Booker is shooting 36% from pull-up threes. That is that, that is we've talked about. That's and, a uh, stat that I like. <laughs> and you know what? That's better than Damian Lillard is shooting on pull-up threes for the season. <laughs> Obviously, Damian Lillard shoots like nine a game, <laughs> so it's a different stat. But just a raw percentage-wise, uh, Damian Lillard is shooting like 35% and that's 36%. Yeah. So that that stat pleases me very much because that's like the thing that the Suns need and and Booker historically has been around like he's finished seasons maybe around 29% there sometimes some years. Um I think he was closer to 32 33 last year. But if he can get up to 36 plus He's he's a different animal offensively. I, I mean, I think I said it literally in our last episode, so I, I don't feel the need to elaborate again. But like, yeah, he's unstoppable if he has that yeah. to his bag, too. Yeah, and I, I think it's a very specific. He's not shooting them behind screens currently. There are some screen scenarios where he takes a dribble and shoots a three. But I think a lot of it is instead of ta- attacking closeouts from the mid-range, he's now taking little side. It's kind of, kind of Jason Tatum style sidestep dribbles and shooting them off the three. And I think that's actually pretty smart because um, that's sort of expanding that mid-range game out to a little further out. And that seems to be how he feels comfortable shooting off the dribble. So if he finds ways to incorporate something that makes him comfortable shooting off the dribble at the three-point line, that's the best possible scenario. He's shooting very well from the three-point line. I think that's the vital thing for him. And maybe there's a question later that we can talk about with that. But um, yeah, I, I'd say he looks pretty good. He's probably about back to normal, and, and it's just about sustained play at this point and consistency. Same, you know, same with DeAndre Ayton, as we talked about a little bit before that. All right, anything else for that one? No, I think we can move on. That was quick and easy. Hopefully, got people back into it after they went and left us a one star review <laughs> um, for the, for the previous topic. That's what it takes sometimes. Uh, is what the Suns bench is doing sustainable? I mean, you talked about it with. Uh, Dario Saric specifically, he's actually missed some games too. Uh, although he comes in and, and the Suns start winning, that just seems to be something that happens. But even without him, there were times where the Suns bench is sort of carrying the team. The starting lineup has been moved around a few times. It's really weird and interesting to see uh, how that works. Uh, but is what they're doing sustainable? My first thought, and I'll just say it before I let you go here, is I don't think it is. I think it's been uh, unsustainably good so far but what do you think yeah i mean again like dario has the best net rating of anyone in the nba yeah uh i know I, I don't think it's sustainable and that's not to say that he can't be very good 
As an aside, I was happy to see KOC in his Power Rankings article today. He mentioned uh, Dario Sarge for Sixth Man of the Year as the mm-hmm. first member. Of course, who else would it be? The first member of the <laughs> national media to kind of hint at that notion. Um, and, and look, all things said and done, I still think Jordan Clarkson wraps that up for Utah just because he plays like 30 minutes a game and Dario yeah. plays like 18, I think, minutes it's played. And, too. Yeah, you need to get people to vote for you for that award. You need to, A, play a lot of games, Dario's missed games, and B, play like 25, 30 minutes. You need to be like a sixth starter, and Monty hasn't used him like that to this point. But I think the lineups uh, will continue to be a positive for the rest of the season. They won't be a plus 20, but they'll be a positive, and that's really all you can ask for out of your bench. If your bench is consistently leaving you in a better position than when your starters left the game, obviously you take that. Um, now, are there tweaks that you can make to this bench? Absolutely. I think Cam Johnson has been good. I think campaign, for the most part, has been good. Etwan Moore, mm, you know, like, it's kind of confusing to me why Etwan Moore is still playing like 15 minutes per game. Yeah. I mean, he's fine. I like I the thing about Etwan is I don't want to throw him under the bus because I don't I still don't think the Suns are using him properly. I still think they're using him primarily as kind of like a point guard and he's not even shooting close to nearly as many three-pointers as he did in New Orleans. So like there's an element of why don't you run this guy off some screens, really try to open him up and I think he would play a lot better. But if they're not going to do that, the Suns could easily go out there and try and find a, a different combo guard off the bench who would yeah. be better than Etuan Moore, better than Langston Galloway, better than Javon Carter. I don't think it would be that hard for them to find that at the deadline. So to go back to our original conversation from the very beginning of the episode about should the Suns make a trade, if you're just looking for minor fixer-uppers, that's that's a very easy route to take and, and probably a smart one too. Yeah. I mean, we talked about George Hill. I think that's probably he's got championship level experience for over four thousand yeah. playoff minutes played. I looked that up. A he's, lot of minutes. He's the obvious guy. One team that I thought was interesting. I was looking at. Uh, I don't. I like. I. I have a hard time believing that they would really be sellers at the deadline. With given the age of a lot of the guys in their core, but I was looking at Indiana, and I think mm-hmm. they're kind of interesting because they're tenth in the East. <laughs> Right now, you know, they're, they're a team that suffered some health setbacks. Um, that team has some interesting options. Like TJ McConnell yeah. is TJ McConnell is a free agent at the end of the year. He's 28 years old. He's only making $3.5 million. You could easily swap Javon Carter in a pick or something. And if the Pacers were interested in it, if they punt on basically being a, a, a legitimate playoff team after they drop a few more games between now and the deadline then there's a guy who's averaging two steals per game. He's giving you great defense and playmaking. You could go get a guy like that off the bench. They also have Jeremy Lamb on the same roster. He's a guy I raved about, I remember, mm-hmm. to you mm-hmm. a couple years ago when he when he hit free agency and chose the Pacers instead. Um, he's, you know, he's exactly what you need out of a combo guard, just like kind of a slasher who can also hit the three, who just gives you points uh, off off the bench and and. and can play that shooting guard position really well. So I think that's an interesting roster. You, you know, you can maybe explore something with them. Um, I don't know that there are any other obvious DeLon targets. Wright is a name I've seen floated around. DeLon um, Wright is definitely interesting. He's having a solid season for Detroit, but Detroit is terrible. The thing that I don't understand about Detroit is they're, they're 10 and 26. They, they should tank. I mean, they should be tanking, but like they're kind of doing this thing, I guess, like the Suns did a couple years ago where they're pretending to mm-hmm. have veterans and be okay. 
and I don't know what it's going to take for them to sell those guys off. I think realistically, you could you could definitely get Delon Wright. Um, you could probably get like Derrick Rose from them pretty easily if you wanted him. I don't want him. Um, but yeah, those are those are interesting <laughs> um, choices. Uh, yeah. Devontae Graham for Charlotte. That's too, a fascinating one. Is a really fascinating one because yeah. uh, he he's injured right now, but it's pretty clear that when he comes back, it's gonna be it's gonna be Lamelo uh, starting in a spot from now on. And he, I mean, he's a really interesting player, man, because because he he he's just one most improved player. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he and he's good. I mean, he's he's pretty he's pretty bad defensively. I'll I'll just say that, but offensively he's a really fascinating piece struggled this season if you look at his stats so it's oh yeah if you look at that he shoots literally like 35 percent from the field and the reason that is is because Devontae Graham is in addition in addition to struggling defensively one of the worst finishers in the NBA yeah one of the worst finishers we've seen in like like rookie Ricky Rubio levels if you remember what rookie Ricky Rubio was like (laughs) when he shot like 35 percent from the field Devonte Graham is that bad, but he hits pull-up threes and he hits step-back threes, and that's exactly what I want uh, the Suns to have on their offense. Is Devonte Graham is a volume shooter who goes out there and just chucks like ten threes a game, and he hits like thirty-six percent of them, and you're like, cool, that's that's great. You and just he's got ball handling skills, he and he's got ball too. handling skills, and he can find, he can leverage his shooting gravity and find the find the open passing lane, find the right guy. So he's really interesting. I don't know if he's actually available, but you know, yeah, just throwing a few names out there, these are the types of guys you might be interested in if you're the Suns because they're obvious upgrades over what you currently have at either backup guard spot. Yeah, and it's something that you'll hear me continually talk about for the rest of the season is can the players that the Suns are getting, can they play minutes in the playoffs as far as defensively that's why george hill easily stands out that's why pj tucker stands out Devonte graham cannot if you're getting Devonte graham you're getting him for a depth piece during the regular season it's not a playoff thing and you're hoping that he can develop into something in the future those guys are still fine you can get those guys they're they're able to be gotten relatively cheap at times during the season and you still have to develop for the future at some point it's a delicate balance but there's a difference between getting guys who can play now and getting guys that you want to develop for the future. And I, I, I agree with that. you. I agree with you to an extent. But also, like, the bar isn't that high right now. Like, I don't think Etwan Moore is that good of a defender either. You know, if we're, like Cameron Payne, I think, has held up pretty well defensively. If you're going to play Devontae Graham at shooting guard instead of Etwan Moore, though, I think you take that trade off, you know? like uh, right, There's going to be three guards, right, that play. <laughs> In the playoffs, right? It's really just going to be right now. If the Suns just stay with so, what they have, it's going to be campaign Chris Paul and Devin Booker, and that's probably it, right? So, so then the entire bench is campaign Darius Sarge and, and Cam Johnson. I could believe that that is the case. I I could believe it. Uh, I, I, I that's the way I look at it now, and I think that's why George Hill it, is the best piece because he can play with campaign still, and they can have an he can basically play shooting guard. The Suns basically their system revolves around having two point guards. That's basically why they continually play. Etuan Warren, why they're playing him the way that they're playing him. And that's why I like the idea of him. I know there are other options as well, but it's just, that's what makes sense to me. He also can play defense in the playoffs. So it's, it's, I don't know. It's going to be fascinating to talk about that. I, by the way, Sam, one of the main reasons I wanted to do this, we shifted for those listening, uh, what we're going to do this morning. This might be the last time we have a conversation like this before trades start being made, whether that be the Suns or other teams, there's not a lot of time to make trades right now. The, the trade deadline is towards the end of this month, but there's not a lot of time to practice with teams. The schedule's packed for the second half of the season, and teams might want to look to make trades now while they have a few extra days to get ready for the second half of the season. 
Uh, so it's good to get this in now. We'll see what happens. Two more questions. <laughs> Let's get to them. It's already getting over an hour here. Uh, what new skill will a player develop in the second half? We don't have to spend too long on this one. I brought up the stat with Devin Booker shooting pull-up threes. I hope it's that. <laughs> I really hope it's that one. Uh, I haven't singled out any specific skill. You you wanted to have this question on here, Sam. Did you have something specific you wanted to talk about? I just wanted to to find a way to push this guy into the conversation because I had a I had a feeling we weren't gonna really mention him. Do you remember in the preseason when uh when Cam Johnson was like driving and stuff? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in the, the it felt like there was this small era in the preseason and at the very beginning of the regular season where both Mikhail Bridges and Cam Johnson were trying to attack rather than just shoot threes. And Mikhail, we've we've seen him continue to do that. Cam, interestingly enough, I feel like he's gotten away from it. And I don't I don't necessarily mind it. You know, I, I Cam's a good shooter. But my thing with Cam Johnson is increasingly it's looking like Cam Johnson is a good shooter. He's not Joe Harris. You know, there's there's a distinction there. Like it feels like Cam is one of those 37-38% three-point shooters. He's good to have in the corner. You feel pretty confident when when you see him rise up with it, but he's not Joe Harris. <laughs> you know, he's not shooting 60% on wide open threes or something ridiculous. So for me, First of all, I think Cam Johnson is, a, is an incredibly hard worker, and he's just an easy guy to root for. But also, the more dynamic he can make his offense, the better. I would like to see him continue to expand his offensive game. And and there's nothing logical about me saying this necessarily. It's kind of just a hunch. But I feel like we're going to start seeing more hints of it in the second half. I feel like yeah, we're going to start seeing see that. A, little, a little bit more of Cam Johnson attacking closeouts, a little bit more of him trying to find ways to boost the Suns' half-court offense even more um, although it already is very good. Got to get Eddie Johnson in his ear because he'll tell him to drive every time. Even though Eddie yeah. Johnson shot a lot, it's kind of such a weird dichotomy there. He needs to make more threes, by the way. <laughs> He's shooting 37% from three right now. I thought he would be better at this point in the yeah. season. You know, if we're talking about expectations versus reality, I thought Cam Johnson would be shooting closer to 40%. He's shooting worse than last season he i still like can everyone, get better he had a rough stretch for a while there but he needs to I make f- more i feel like we were sold on cam johnson as like a 6'9 landry shamit who was just gonna like he was gonna shoot 45 percent from three and be useless at everything else and instead yeah. we've gotten this really right. interesting kind of well-rounded player yeah, where yeah. shooting is still the primary skill but it's not elite it's just pretty good but everything else, he shows you little good flashes defense, of these other right? things. Pretty good defense. He shows you flashes of a complete player, and you want to bring it out of him because you know that that's going to be the best possible player to have. If you get to the playoffs and the Suns are only running an eight-man rotation, Cam Johnson is definitely in that rotation. He's definitely playing close to 20 minutes per game in the playoffs. Yeah. So you want the most well-rounded player possible. And, uh, and yeah, just anything he can add to his game would be nice. I, I got one more. DeAndre Ayton passing to cutters, I would like to see. Yeah. Because there was one play where he passed to Mikhail Bridges in the last game before the... Uh, I've seen uh, I've seen him do that to Mikhail Bridges twice yeah, and in, it just, in the past week. It really, rarely, rarely happened before that. <laughs> like, rarer. And you watch how much it happens with Frank Kaminsky as the big or Dario Saric finding cutters from all over the place. The most rare uh, cases were when DeAndre Ayton held the ball um, around the elbows. If DeAndre Ayton can get more chemistry with those guys cutting to the rim, first of all, it, it allows him to be played more, like we talked about, hit, earning his minutes. Um, 
And two, it just would be a vital development for those guys. If they continue to cut and not get the ball, that does open other guys up. Like it's not like a completely fruitless effort to cut and not get the ball. But I do think that guys cut with a little more intent when they know the ball could be coming their way. So if he can find ways to find more guys on on cuts, specifically Mikhail Bridges, but also Devin Booker, uh, that I think would be pretty nice for this team. He just he has the ball a lot at the top of the key, and it's for him it's almost entirely dribble handoffs, which are good. That's a good thing to to have in, in your bag, especially when you have Devin Booker and Chris Paul on the team. But the defense knows that's coming. You know that means that if he can find ways to to find cutters, I think that would help a lot. All right, last one. Is Monty Williams ready for the playoffs? I saved this one for last. We haven't had a long Monty Williams conversation. Let me. I'm going to tell know if you. We have time to have a long one anymore. No. <laughs> hey, we, anyway, but. I mean, we could, but we're not going to force people <laughs> to stick around that long. Let me just say this about how I feel about play uh, about coaches in general. I tend to not uh, attack coaches in the regular season. There are things I think that I find puzzling sometimes, but I think the goals in the regular season are multifaceted. The goals are, of course, always to win. But I think it becomes a little bit more complicated when you have players that you're trying to teach certain concepts, you're trying to get certain things right for a team in the regular season. So decisions made in the regular season, I don't always uh, attack coaches for. I think Monty Williams has done a relatively good job. I think that the playoffs is where you can judge coaches. That is where adjustments matter the most because there's one goal and one goal only and that's to win the game you're no longer trying to develop players you're no longer trying out new plays in the playoffs you have your guys you have your rotations you're making adjustments based on what the other team is doing and that's where you can be judged I'm not sure that I know that Monty Williams is ready for the playoffs I have not attacked him by design this season in the regular season for decisions he's made and I'm not going to count some of the weird decisions he's made against him in the playoffs because I think things change so dramatically in the playoffs that that is where I will plan on making my judgments about who he is and what he can do. That, that's basically not, where I'm at. You plan on not calling for his head until after the first round exit is what you're saying. Absolutely. Um, I, I think yeah. that's where you have to really judge a coach because that's where they right. earn their money. That's where they matter the most. No, I understand what you're saying. Um, I, I'm, I'm with you, really. I, I I haven't seen I, I think the last time we had this conversation I even said that yeah that element of Monty can't be judged until you get to the playoffs anyway so it's still like we can't we can't have the adjustment conversation we don't know if he's going to make adjustments yet because we we just haven't seen it I think there are flashes of of good signs things that project towards being a good playoff coach I like the fact you know you you brought up at one point today DeAndre Ayton getting cooked on the perimeter by James Harden and he got mm-hmm. cooked on the perimeter by LaMelo Ball in a different game about a week later too and mm-hmm. and I liked to see that because it told me that Monty was already toying with schemes that he knew were going to be important to use in the playoffs so like I like seeing that sort of stuff and I I think you know even when it doesn't necessarily always lead to um, explicit regular season success any sort of regular season experimentation uh, on the part of Monty Williams, that's been all cool to me yeah. so far. But the whole adjustment game, who knows? <laughs> who knows? I'd like, I like. I don't know. We just don't know until he gets into a series. Yeah, know, I mean, I, you can't knock. Like, you can definitely knock some of his rotations so far. 
the, yeah, the Frank yeah. Kaminsky thing is still weird. No, I, I totally, I totally get that. I, I really do, but so I just don't know the entire. I feel like the entire context is sometimes missing in the regular season for why decisions are made. Whereas in the playoffs, there's so much more obvious. Like the context is so much yeah. more obvious. So it's difficult for me to just fully fault him on that. Uh, also, like the the most important thing here is you got to win enough games to command the respect of your entire locker room. I think it's very impressive that Monty Williams has been given a a, a group of 12 or 13 capable NBA players who could play on any given night. He only plays like nine of them. And yet the guys who are on the fringes, the Langston Galloways, the Javon Carters, even the Jay Crowders who, who lost his starting spot, none of those guys who have been put through kind of weird situations have complained even a little bit because they've put their full faith in Monty. That says a lot about the type of leader of men that he is. And so that's very important. But yes. that's very much a regular season principle scheme thing. And, and again, kind of can easily fly out the window in the playoffs if he doesn't make the proper adjustments. Yeah, people commonly underrate the importance of having the respect of the specifically the star players on your team and how vital that is uh, for being an NBA coach. You talked about um, the Nets game and the Charlotte game. And I just want to point out, Monty Williams talked about something after that that I thought was fascinating. He said that they were trying to completely rethink how to guard guys in the perimeter in the modern NBA, which I loved to hear. But what they were doing, and in, in, in from what I can tell, we haven't had a discussion about this, is they were having DeAndre play further up on screens. We talked about it briefly. and then, But the other side of that is they were using Mikhail Bridges as a help defender at the rim. And I just find that kind of fascinating because what they're saying is, Stop the three point stop the three point shot at all costs. If DeAndre Ayton can't keep up, then Mikhail Bridges is gonna slide over as the help defender and try and guard at the rim. It didn't really work, but you know, they, they just tried it for two games really, so I can't say sure. that it's not it's not a, a viable strategy. But the idea of completely rethinking how to defend with DeAndre Ayton on your team, I think is an interesting one. I think for what DeAndre Ayton can do, probably playing a little further back and counting on his length to still contest threes is probably better, especially against Uh, LaMelo Ball. But I kind of liked that they were trying that. I I find it great. And I think no matter who he's playing against, it could be LaMelo, it could be Dame, it could be Steph, I think... You, you do what's worked with DeAndre in the past and trust him to play, you know, socially distance, basically, play six feet back or whatever. <laughs> and, and literally, though, and, and trust his length to still contest that shot and make it somewhat difficult on the three-pointer. Maybe they want to get it up there and challenge him. But you, you feel good about that contest. And then most importantly, because if you make it too easy for these guards, these guards are not the 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 way the Suns were defending them, it acts like they're desperate to take that three-point shot. They're not that desperate. These guys are willing to drive on you. Dame, Steph, they're willing to drive on you and go all the way to the rim, and they're actually pretty good finishers as well. Otherwise, they wouldn't be the caliber of player that they are. So when you concede the drive to them too easily by just almost playing eight and up, not giving them an inch of space, and funneling them towards Mikhail Bridges, there's going to be someone open on the perimeter every time you're conceding a rotation to the offense. The ball is inevitably going to find an open shooter somewhere. So, you know, I feel like it's a system where you're so focused on denying the initial three-pointer that you're going to lead to a different open three-pointer. It just might take 10 or 15 seconds to find it. That's how I feel about it. Right. That being said, it was it was worthwhile to try it. And and maybe, you know, in future situations, it'll still be worthwhile to try. Yeah, but I still think... Against certain teams, it might still work. 
switching is still kind of like a liberal attitude in the NBA. It's still like this newfangled method that not everyone uses. So just having DeAndre Ayton switch in the first place, but then having him be a little bit more conservative, drop back just a little, probably works best. I think that probably works best. Obviously, we can't say with any any certainty. You know, the last thing I want to say on this is the idea that Monty needs to find a specific rotation and stick with it or a specific scheme and stick with it. I don't I also don't really firmly believe either. Uh, I really don't because I do think in the playoffs you might have to change that rotation up. You might have to start different guys in the playoffs. That commonly happens. The best coaches are the coaches that do that. The Miami Heat started different guys in the playoffs than they started in the regular season. The Miami Heat, Spo, I, by the way, I think is the best coach, didn't even start Goran Dragic, one of their five best players in the entire regular season. They're not even starting him this year for a lot of their games. Coaches can change things. Nick Nurse, for example, played 15 different styles of defense at the end of uh, the season that they won in the finals because they wanted to be prepared to try 20 different things once they got to the playoffs. Did it work in the regular season every single time? No, it didn't. You have to try different things. The idea of being open to try things, the idea of being open to play different lineups, I think is actually more important than just sticking with something and staying with yep. it. The best coaches now are the ones willing to try the craziest shit. So I'm not fully I, convinced I, that he just I needs think, to stick with something. I think there's a difference, though. I half agree with you, but I think there's a difference between lineups and lineup combinations versus schemes. Uh, you know, when when you're talking about schemes... It's the Budenholzer versus Nick Nurse debate. Right. Why did the Bucks fail in the playoffs versus why did Nick Nurse? Nick they Nurse never tried changed, crazy right? shit. What, sorry, what'd you say? The Bucks never changed. The Bucks, yeah, exactly. The Bucks never changed and the Raptors changed constantly. The Raptors threw every other opponent out of rhythm because they always played a different, you know, pick and roll defense or just defensive style in general. The Bucks never changed at all and they became exploitable because... It was just obvious. That's one thing, and, and, and I agree with that. I think it's important to learn how to play different ways. Actually, just finding your lineups, though, I, I think there's so, I still think there's so much importance in just feeling comfortable with the right guys around you. And I think using those regular season reps to really get guys comfortable with each other, uh, regardless of what scheme they're playing or, or, or defensive system they're playing in, I think that stuff is still really important. So I don't know. I, I feel differently about those two things. Yeah, I, and to an extent, I agree with that. But if we're talking specifically about Jay Crowder not starting for a lot of the regular season and then starting in the playoffs, well, that's exactly what Miami did. <laughs> you know, that's like exactly what they did, and they made the finals with that. So I don't necessarily think that it's it's a precursor to, to bad decisions in the playoffs because we've seen it literally with the same player not necessarily work out that way. That's all I'm saying. I think that there is a chance that it could be bad, that these guys aren't fully familiar with playing with each other. I just think the way that we think about coaching sometimes is not exactly true to reality, where sometimes it is just finding guys that work together in specific matchups in the playoffs that maybe haven't even played a lot of minutes together. That's not that completely insane uh, for how it works in the playoffs. I guess that's really my only point there. I mean, I think it all comes down to, it's often said about coaching, it's 80, 90% just managing egos and personalities. And, you know, there are X's and O's involved. There are lineup adjustments to make, but that stuff can sometimes be overrated by fans. And and we sometimes overrate the actual day-to-day influence that that a head coach has, I think, over Mm -hmm. any particular team, for sure. Yeah. And they're just the easiest, they're the easiest scapegoat. 
you know? Yeah. And so I sit here and I'm going to be a hypocrite. And if we lose in the first round, I don't think there's anything Monty could do this year to deserve to be fired for no. the record. No, but no, no, say, no. you know, if, if Monty goes two or three straight playoff appearances and can't get the Suns out of the first round, inevitably, it sucks to say, but the same thing is going to happen to him as <laughs> every other coach who does that, right? Yeah. Because yeah. they are always the easiest scapegoat. It's, it's kind of how the world works. Well, like I said, and when you're judging coaches based on the playoffs, I tend to just believe you a little bit more than when you're going over the top in a regular season. Every single loss has been blamed on Monty. Good teams lose games. Every single loss has been blamed on Monty. I don't really do that, and I don't really think that way, um, but I get it. So the second half of the season starts on Thursday. The first game is against Portland, I believe, which is an important game for the Suns to win as far as trying to get the highest seed possible. It's going to be a fascinating second half of the season i can't sam i'll be honest i can't wait to cover it with you it's been really fun to cover this team so far we i think cover, we have we covered some pretty shitty teams <laughs> i think we haven't even scratched the surface of of like how mind-bogglingly crazy it's about to get for this yeah. fan base um you know we have our little niche community on twitter that we interact with or whatever but you, you can definitely feel it building yeah. It's gonna explode <laughs> in the in the next couple months. Like it's gonna it's it's gonna happen, and I think it's gonna be crazy. Uh, but yeah. yeah, I can't wait to cover it. it. Should be fun. I can't wait. I can't wait. So we'll be back after the games come back and have a lot more to talk about. I'm sure. Thanks everyone for listening. Yeah, um, I think when I go to these different teams. One thing that I always stress is, uh, Doc used to say it all the time when I played for him. Monty said too, is that it's hard to win in this league, right? It's hard to win one game. So, um, you know, the thing that separates the really good teams from the not so good teams is execution and, uh, you know, staying the course like the last four minutes, last five minutes of the game. And uh, that's important. That's important. You can be as talented as you want. You've been seeing guys sometimes in this league who can go out and get 25, 30 in their sleep. But then it's the last five minutes of the game where teams win or lose it. So um, we've been really just trying to focus on that, the little things. You know, the, the little things a lot of times don't show, their, show his face until late in the game. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran. Marvelous Marvin Hagler and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.